Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a really fun episode. We're calling this $17 million FinTech Ideas. After a long string of interviews, we got Jeff back in the studio. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, what's happening? This is going to be a lot of fun today. We're going to go back and forth and talk about a lot of my terrible ideas, many of which we published in the past, and we'll be updating them, but a lot of new ideas too. So hopefully, if you listen to this and start a new business, give us a 10% cut one day. Uh, what do you know? You just want to jump right in? We want to talk about anything? No, get started? No, no. I mean, let's let's uh, add a little context before we jump right in. First of all, give us a baby update. How is uh, Tony Huge? Super easy. It's been great. Uh, wait, wait, by the way, do you want to explain the etymology of Tony Huge? For his, his name is Anton Hugo, which he didn't have for the first day five days of his life. I was holding out for, of course, Meb or Mebin. <laughs> And then Gunner. Should have been Mebson. Yeah. But we have a pretty funny piece of paper from the hospital that has about a dozen names crossed out, circled. Jackie didn't approve on any of them, really. So we eventually settled on it. Love it. Looks just like it. We had some other names, but once he came out, he kind of was like, he doesn't look like that. But Gunner... Gunner was a sad, it was a sad one I have to cross off. Well, I'm curious if... Maybe next child. I'm curious if having a kid has changed your perspective on anything, life, money, work-life balance. You know, you hear about new fathers who suddenly I drink a lot epiphany. more whiskey. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's, it's been great. No, it's been great. Uh, I have seven nieces and nephews, so I've seen this kind of story play out before, but uh, it's been great. All right. Well, uh, anything else the on your The first end? night, however... I was like, why did I do this? This is the worst <laughs> night of my life. What did I just do? After that, it's been fine. <laughs> just one night? That's just all you The first night was so bad. Yeah, Changed like, like 10 diapers. It was like black and yellow. Every father in this is can, and, and mother can, can sympathize. But yeah, it was first night was tough. You've only struggled with one night. I think you're uh, way ahead of the knock game. Knock on wood. Let me knock on wood. There. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, why don't we jump in? But you know, give us a little bit more background here on what we're doing today. So it's going to be—is it seventeen or sixteen? Seventeen. So sure. um, We may add some more. We'll see if we can get up to twenty. Over the past five years, maybe even longer, we had opined on a lot of fintech space, and we did a series of posts called Million Dollar Fintech Ideas, and a lot of these were—I mean, we we could call them. Terrible fintech ideas. So you may think these are awful. We just thought they were great. And we then updated it, you know, and said, hey, here's some that have been done. Here's some that haven't been done. And so we'll kind of go through the list of one of the ones we mentioned before and then add a whole bunch of new ones. I, th- I just think it'll be a lot of fun because it sparks a lot of curiosity and brainstorming. And maybe people listening to this say, I would love to run with that. Or pe- maybe people say this is terrible. So we'll, we'll see. All right. So you're just giving these away for free. If anybody has the well, interest, I mean, and, and the, so the, the general theme of almost all of these is I wish someone was doing this. I would probably pay for this. 
I, I either don't have time or don't have the expertise or the interest in doing a lot of these, but it's something I would pay for. That's usually the genesis of me looking around and saying, man, I wish I had this resource. I don't. I wish someone would do it. All right. Well, it's, uh, if somebody was interested in running this, but they wanted to be partnering with you, would you be willing to sort of have a partnership if they did the heavy lifting? Of course. Email right. Jeff. I would love jr at cambrianvestments.com or we, feedback at the Med Favor Show. have got enough on my plate right no, now. No, we would love to. That's a, that's a great idea. All right. All right. Well, let me quickly backtrack on that idea. Yeah. I mean, some of these, many of these I would even fund. I mean, depending, it's the right people, but, but it all comes down to the people. And, and this is probably a good starting point where... The biggest challenge with people looking for jobs or, you know, starting companies, but also with their career in general, it, it comes back and think about how they spend their time and how they approach things. We get resumes every day, right? Mm-hmm. I get, I get one every single day. And the way that people go about getting a job 99% of the time is 180 degrees the wrong way. Let me let me explain this because I think it's important. And I was guilty of this for the vast majority, you know, of my twenties, vast majority of my life. And here's here's the way that most people go about getting a job. And I actually printed this out. Uh, uh, this is an actual email. I will make this anonymous to protect the uh, innocent. But here's a typical email I get: subject line, research analyst slash consultant. Dear Mevin, I'm contacting you to see whether you would be interested in my profile. I'm looking for a reliable person to take my career to the next level and from whom I can learn. Then it goes on from there for like 10 more paragraphs. Okay, this is the exact wrong way to get a job. And I think most people would know that. They should well, at least maybe I'll personalize or whatever. But the way that most people go about getting a job, and this applies also to people mid-career, we'll talk about that in a second, is they're making a lot of asks. Okay, so let's, let's look at this email. First ask. They're asking me and or our team to read the email. Okay. So take time out of your day and read this email. Two, they're then asking, so are you interested in my profile? Two, they're asking you to take time to read their resume. Third, then they're asking time to like set up a call. So that's another half an hour, hour, then having the call. And then the ask is, I want you to take my career to a new level. And I want to learn from you. So that's like six different asks, right? Mm -hmm. None of which remotely is that person offering anything of value whatsoever. So this one usually goes into the trash can immediately, okay? And that's the problem with 99% of the way that people apply for jobs is they think, you know, they're Miss Brazil and Miss Universe contest where they're like, hey, like, you need to pick me. And that's why no one almost ever gets responses or jobs. I mean, the way that, and you may not remember this, but the way that a lot of people, the correct way to do it is, let me demonstrate my value. Okay. Yep. Let me make, and you know, an Epstein from the Cubs had a great uh, interview the other day where he said, and this applies more to mid-career, but it's the same concept. He goes, if you want to get better at your job or move up, go up to your boss or go to the people you work with and say, what is the worst 20% of your job? that you hate doing, that you don't want to do, because I'll do that. And so all of a sudden, you you learn, so you get to do part of their job, which is someone above you, but also you're taking off their plate a bunch of terrible stuff. Same thing when applying for a job. So it's here's how I would approach it. So first, let's say I was emailing it. I'd say, dear ma'am, first, you know, I just want to say, love your research. 
I've read all your books. I've read all the white papers. I've read every single blog post and I've listened to every single podcast. Okay. One. So that they, they come, they've made an effort and this doesn't apply to me. It applies to anyone. You, if you're going to apply for a job, you need to do at least your homework. You can't just start off by saying it's a totally anonymous email or like, Hey, I'm, are you interested in me? Okay. Well, let me stop you there. Cause implicit upon what you're saying is a fundamental sort of paradigm shift in the attitude of the applicant. You know, I understand the plight of the applicant because you're out there trying to find something, you're throwing spaghetti at the wall, but that's not going to get you anywhere. If you truly want to get the the higher, it takes the time and the energy and the research to actually, number one, know what you want to do. Narrow down the universe to those few companies or opportunities that truly fit what you want, and then put in the time to actually do the background work to understand where you could add value, what they're doing, what the company wants to do, where they're going. I agree with all of that, except the know where you're going. Like, I, like even if you're coming out of college and you don't know what you want to do, but you decide to select an industry or a company, well, to do the, the homework. To the extent you Correct. know where you're going. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, if you're looking into something, do the homework, do the homework on all the people you're going to interview with, read as much as you can about them. I mean, we've written articles about this on the blog. We'll link to them called something like how to get a hedge fund job. And it's five years ago, similar things. And, and, one of the, I remember an old Kramer article. He was like, if I was going to do a hedge fund interview, I would show up an hour early. I would buy Krispy Kremes for the office. I'd be the first person there. I would, you know, all these things. And, uh, you know, we used to joke our, our favorite unclaimed.org idea, mm-hmm. you know, where people get to look, search for unclaimed assets. I say, I would show up at the interview. I would search every single person in the office, see if the government owes them money. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the interview, say, hey, look, just, you know, I, I don't want you to think this is creepy, but just so you know, I did this extra work and oh, by the way, the government owes your office $15,000. So already I'm kind of net neutral on, on, on <laughs> you hiring me. So you kind of should hire me. I just saved you 15000 Anyway, but here's what I would say. I'd say, hey, look, I've, I've done my homework. I've read your stuff. I mean, that's just bare bottom. And then say, look, here's how I could be of value. Here's the things that I could do for you. You know, so, hey, I read this. So maybe if they're looking for a research post, they said, look, I read this research post of yours. Or I said, hey, you're, have you ever thought about this? And why don't I work on this research project for you? Or, hey, Meb, I saw you talked about one of these $17 million fintech ideas. Why don't I run with it? You know, and, and so we'll, we'll, we'll use one as a case study, which is an idea that we just published recently uh, on the blog called... $160,000 to get an MBA or get paid to get a master's in investing. And so this we'll, we'll call this our first one, which is essentially an idea that, that we struggle with all the time, which is news and research curation. So a couple of years ago, we started one of our million-dollar fintech ideas, which is I struggle with uh, needle in the haystack as far as investment research. So much out there. Every day I get dozens, if not hundreds of pieces from Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and newsletters and tweets and everything about various just research process. And, and very little of it is actually, you know, actionable or useful. And so the challenge of winnowing that down. And so for the longest time, I'd say, man, I would love to pay someone to curate Twitter for the best possible tweets or to curate investment research. So eventually we just did it on our own and we have a lot of subscribers now because they find a lot of value in that service because it so saves the them idea time. Farm. The idea farm. So yeah. that's an example of one. But then we started tweeting a few months ago and I said, look, there's a whole new area, these podcasts. And so when we got started, we weren't, weren't one of the first, but we were earlier. 
you know, Ritholtz and a few other were doing them. And now there's probably two dozen good finance investing startup podcasts, right? So let's say there's 30. Each one puts out one per week. Some put out more, some less. But let's say one per week is the standard. And they're hour long, usually, right? That's 30 hours a week. Who has 30 hours a week to listen to all those? Maybe 10 of them are, are five are exceptional, 10 are good, and maybe 20 are just average, poor, or terrible, right? The challenge though is even in the average or terrible ones, there could be a great little section. Yeah. And so you could have one that's absolutely awful for an hour and a half. And I actually have FOMO while listening to many because like a lot of times it'll be a great guest, world renowned guest. And I just sit there, just nails on a chalkboard. It's terrible. And then there's five minutes at the end. That's just a, a total gold mine, right? And so, but that's the problem. Who has 30 hours to, a week to listen? Even if you listen at 2x speed, which I do. I, by the way, I saw a new app came out that now lets you do 3x. Not, <laughs> not quite there yet. But 2x. So even if you're spending 15 hours a week, I mean, that's a ton of time. And you're wasting half that time, at least. So we were tweeting. We said, hey, look, I would love for someone to curate the podcast and just send me an update once a week. Top five. Here's the top five investing ones. And also, maybe here's the best clips from all of them, you know, mashed into one. And, you know, we got dozens of responses on Twitter where people were like, I love that idea. A lot of famous people, investors were like, hey, I would help fund that. Like, you know, totally, me too. And so I said, look, you know, tell you what, why don't we do it on our own? And this, we being Jeff and I and, and the team here said, so we announced this on, on the blog and we'll put a link in the show notes. And we said, look, we're going to hire a handful of people. This could be as few as one, as many as maybe five. But the way that we're going to see if those people are any good is we'll do a three month trial period. And so the offer is this, you know, and we'll have a template that we'll put on the, on the people that are interesting. So if you're interested in this, for example, again, send an email to jrcambryinvestments.com. But essentially, you'll listen to the podcast each week. You'll rank them one to 10. You'll write down any of the top moments, almost like a sports center or talk soup for... Is it talk soup, the mm-hmm. e-show? Yeah. Is that still around? I think it's off now. But basically, it's just like a highlight reel of the best parts of these podcasts. And so the people that... Let, so we'll do this for three months. And at the end of three months, we'll hire those people that have demonstrated to be excellent at this fully paid position. Potentially, if we're getting the quality we want. Just right. as a I mean, disclaimer. Assuming, assuming there'll be at least... I mean, we've had like 30 people respond already. And you know it's only been up for an hour. So assuming so and there's two ways to look at this one was hey why not crowdsource it and the problem is you know most of these sites don't let you rate episodes you know apple's terrible at it i think there's a couple sites that let you but even then like you said the episode could be a one star out of five but have some great moments so we're going to pay people to do it just for our own personal use to the extent that we you know build something that we think the community at large will find of interest we'll we'll share it with the community, you know, or build something out of it. But this is literally for my own use. I mean, think about it for example. Let's say I value my time at a hundred bucks an hour, right? What is that yearly? I'm trying to think that's 200 grand. All right. That's way more than I'm worth, but we'll call it a hundred bucks an hour. The average advisor on here probably makes 300 grand. You, you, uh, you, you high net worth advisors out there, but let's say you value your time at a hundred bucks an hour, you know, and half the podcasts are shit. So right there, if we just eliminated half of the podcasts, I mean, there's nothing better than listening to a good podcast. There's nothing worse than listening to a worse. That right there saves 25 grand worth of your time per year. 
it's something that we're willing to pay for just for our own internal use. Maybe we'll share with the community. But so here's an example of, of kind of the original tweet is like, I would hire an intern to do this, curate the podcast, you know, and then I got dozens of people like me too. I would love to do this. Like I, I let me submit zero emails of people actually willing to make the effort. Right. Going back to the whole conversation of be of value, be of effort. So we're doing it kind of as a contest three months and, and Jeff will send the info to the people that are interested where you listen to the podcasts, you rate them, add some notes. If you make it through month one, uh, we'll give you a free idea farm subscription. So that right there is 500 bucks, 400 bucks, excuse me. If you make it into month three and you get selected, we'll pay you going forward. It, so the worst case scenario is you've listened to a bunch of podcasts. So particularly if you're a younger investor, an MBA, college student, or even someone who's like just interested in finance, people that listen to podcasts already, what a great gig. Worst case scenario is you listen to all these great podcasts, come up with a bunch of new ideas, new investment ideas, new concepts. Um, best case, you get paid to do these podcasts. So first million dollar idea is essentially this Podcast Talk Soup, Podcast Sports Center, Curated Podcasting. To clarify, though, this is the one that we're actually running with. The remaining ones yeah. are going to be more open to other people. Well, I mean, look, pursuing. I mean, someone can steal this and run with it, sure, but yeah. I mean, there's the pro, and this is the same problem with tweets. You know, we used to tweet a lot about, you know, Twitter is just a fire hose. So even if you use lists or whatever, it's just a total mess. And so I used to tweet, I said, look, I wish I could sort my tweets based on, most favorited or most retweeted and there's one website that lets you do it called favstar or favstar terribly designed but it actually works and so there's some apps that came out that try to do it nuzzle is one but they all, all those try to they do just the link so there, there, there's a lot so i think you need the human curation maybe ai gets good enough at some point but right now it's not the psychology behind going with sort of the you know whoever ranks something the highest seems a little off to me because i think people's tendency is to respond more when they're angry or upset and they sort of give you a bad ranking versus yeah i mean maybe i mean the good news is i i think um having instructions for a smaller group of people will you know with, with very specific hey look this is what we want you know maybe it's multiple grades maybe it's one to ten on storytelling and interest maybe it's one to ten on usefulness you know we'll see we'll figure it out but we'll build the template get this started i think it's gonna be a lot of fun but again just just this is a classic example of something that if i was applying for a job you know you you demonstrate your value first by the way sorry quick aside do you want to give the quick story of that email we received recently two emails the first was hey meb love your podcast especially love the recent like van simmons episode and then the second email was accidentally sent to us it showed the template and it said like hey meb really enjoyed your bracket insert kind oh, yeah. of area that, here that poor guy that poor guy he, he got crushed on twitter that's the thing nowadays <laughs> like if you make mistakes like that on social media there was once an email forbes was trying to get into the blog aggregation space back in like 08 so they, Forbes has all these writers ranging from Ken Fisher all the way down to me at the bottom, you know, and so, but they sent out a mass email and didn't BCC everyone. And it was about like how much you're getting paid and all this stuff. So the vast majority of contributors got paid nothing. 
And it was the most amazing thread you have ever been on. And it went on for like a week where people were like, unsubscribe me. And then another one's like, why am, why am I not getting paid? Like it's the all time social media snafu. It was so much fun. But yeah, it, uh, it, yeah, that was, that was a funny one. Okay. We, we better start moving on. Yep. This is going to be a five hour episode. So, so episode, so idea one kind of curated podcast episodes. There's a, uh, we noticed there's a, there's a cool, you know, we've seen this for um, curated uh, like book summaries as well as curated uh, ones called Get Abstract. There was someone tweeted out a summary for podcasts in the startup space, Podcast Wire, I think. But none of them kind of rank them and sort them. You know, Product Hunt does like top podcasts of the year. But again, it's just kind of this mismatch of everything. So anyway, ours is highly focused. We'll see. It'll be fun. Email Jeff, not me. <laughs> all right let's move, move on move on number two liquid alts this goes back to one of the very first posts we did and again this is something that i would literally pay someone to do and here's the problem so most investors so this isn't just individual retail but also pros all the tens of thousands of financial advisors out there i think have a hard time making heads and tails of all the funds that come to market so you now have these thousands of etfs over 10,000 mutual funds. Like, how do you do the research on that? So there's great sites, obviously, Morningstar, et cetera, you know, write a lot about that, but particularly with the liquid alt space. So Wait, what do stop, we... stop real quick. Just contextualize for anybody out there. What's liquid alt? So liquid alternatives. So it's um, not just your traditional buy and hold indexing, like US stocks or foreign stocks or bonds, but stuff like managed futures, which we've talked a lot about, or maybe currency strategies, long short equity, you know, hedge fund like strategies, even these volatility, triple levered, who knows what funds. So the simple idea would be to write a monthly piece or quarterly, but I think it would have to be monthly. And you could do uh, kind of a, a freemium model where you have a free website that kind of covers the liquid alt space specifically, and then a paid subscription that really dives deep into, into these funds and ideas. And our last guest would actually probably be like the person, perfect person to do it. Unfortunately, he's CEO of ETF.com. So Nadig, he knows more about ETFs than anyone. You haven't listened to that episode. It was a lot of fun. But, you know, so for example, like we get questions every single day. People are like, Hey, Meb, you know, I love your comments on managed futures. Can you tell me which funds are good and which funds are bad or what should I do? And, you know, we can't talk about funds. We can't mm-hmm. make recommendations to, to non clients and all this stuff. So there's a Grand Canyon wide difference between the, the structures and the strategies and everything else in between. But, you know, how much are you asking someone to do to do research on those thousands of funds, even to keep up? Like, it's literally my job. Like, we launch ETFs and use ETFs. I can't keep up with all the funds out there and what's going on. I mean, that was Dave's point at the end when we were talking about his um, best advice for listeners. He was saying how the various sort of smaller things you discuss, the spreads, commissions, all that, that's nothing compared to what he called what's under the hood of the ETFs. You yep. know, so... So th- this is a big opportunity. Um, and so of the old ideas, we'll kind of, you know, kind of mention some of the contenders. Is anyone doing it? Has anyone approached it? Are they not? So the contenders in this space right now are Brian Haskin, who runs Daily Alts, great free website, been trying to convince him to do a paid product for years. Morningstar has, um, two good publications. One's called ETF Investor. The other called is, is called like, fund investor, so mutual fund investor. And Morningstar does, I think, the best job on 
fund, you know, analysis and education, but there's nothing specific to liquid alt. So they may cover liquid alts in their ETF investor, but nothing specifically. And I actually think the right way to do it is you actually have to have like a recommended list. So say, look, we'll cover managed futures, but here's five that we would use or like, you know, we'll cover long, short equity funds, but here's, you know, some that we would use and here's some that you should run away from no matter what. Um, some other people, we, we tried to hire Sam Lee at one point, one of my favorite writers, but he went and started his own IRA, uh, RIA. And then, uh, so there's not a whole lot of players out there, huge opportunity. And so by the way, if you are a listener and you know of other, um, sites doing these things or something that we've glossed over, shoot us an email. We'll include it in the show notes. I think this is really low hanging fruit. So this again qualifies under the idea of something I would pay to subscribe to tonight. There you go. All right, next. Next, tax harvesting. Um, tax harvesting was an example of something we wrote about really before it started to become um, pretty widespread. So it went from an idea where I was like, hey, wouldn't it be nice if you could just type in your portfolio and have a website that would automatically send you updates on when to tax harvest it? And so tax harvesting is nothing new. I mean, it's been around for decades. Parametric was doing it in the 1990s. Give, give a uh, tax harvesting is, is the concept that. If you have a portfolio of ETFs or funds or stocks or whatever, that if you consistently take the losses and you wait 30 days for the wash sale rule, so sell a stock or a fund and then replace it with a near identical one, is that you're consistently taking losses um, and kind of lowering your tax bill because you can claim those losses against future gains and you're delaying the gains for for future. Yeah, right? because you're investing in similar funds, you're maintaining the same balance in your portfolio. Yeah. And so this is this is a good example of a good business concept actually just became a feature. So a lot of the robo-advisors were very quick to add this. Um, almost all of them have it now. Wealthfront was early. Betterment does it. Uh, Parametric's been doing it since the 90s. There's a cool app website called FeeX that lets you type in you know, funds as well as things that's, that's doing something similar. Uh, Richard Smith does trade stops. And there's a lot more. But, but it really didn't become a standalone business. It became sort of this feature rather, which is fine. And it's good. And we're glad to see it incorporated because it could be a lot of value. What's interesting is that as financial planning and investment management progresses, I mean, there is a scenario, for example, where you don't want to be doing tax harvesting. You want to be doing the opposite, where you want to be taking gains early. And and, and one of the reasons mm-hmm. why is, for example, if you're a very young investor with, with very low tax rates, you say, well, look, no, I want to be booking my gains now because I know that in 5, 10, 20 years, I'll be making orders of magnitude more you know, salary mm-hmm. and my tax rate will be higher. Right. So eventually, the, the tax planning software may you know, get, get that sophisticated. But right now, in general, it's a, it's a, it's a better use to delay and to, uh, to harvest the nut. Where is the, what's missing from what's available on the market now? Where's the real value add that you're seeing I don't think there is. I think it's been incorporated in enough places. You know, it just goes back to digital advisors in general. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day, you know, having implemented it personally, as well as for our clients, I can't fathom ever going back to not having an automated digital advisor solution for my own investments or my clients. Like once people implement it, I cannot fathom anyone ever going back. It's like going from the iPhone back to the you know, um, StarTech flip phone. I mean, you probably would. I, I love the flip you, phone, right? <laughs> flip phone's amazing. Uh, well, hold on, but if this is on the list, it's already been done. Why is it yeah, on the so, list? So I said in the first like five, we're covering old ideas uh, as okay. an example of things, just updating them. Some have been done, some have not. Okay. And it also goes to show like 
how some have been tackled, some haven't, some become features, some become entire companies. Well, that'd be interesting if something that made the list X years ago, which has largely been done, you now see a current way to it take better. it to the next level. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Are right, we done with tax harvesting? Yep. All right. Best Ideas Newsletter. Best Ideas Newsletter was a concept that, you know, there's a lot of these like idea conferences. So like Ira Sohn, there's Whitney Tilson puts on one, but there's a lot of these charity events, you know, where you'll have Jeff Gunlock or David Einhorn will come on and say, here's my best stock idea right now. And a lot of them are for charity or whatnot. And I always said, hey, man, it'd be fun to actually just have like a newsletter, one that the interview process, you know, a lot of podcasts and, and, and newsletters have a similar flow. Tell me your background. Let's talk about research, whatever. But to actually have one just be like the entire show is just like, all right, what's your best idea? And let's just talk about it. And, you know, some managers can't talk about it. Some don't want to for various reasons. But I always thought that was fun. So then there's a handful of companies and shops that have sort of been in this area. The Idea Farm, you know, is one that we started that has a list of all these idea conferences and resources. So if you go to idea the ideafarm.com and the resources that'll have a lot of these. But here's a number of other people that have kind of tried to top, uh, tackle this. There's a newsletter called The Manual of Ideas um, that's actually really long and good. It does some um, conferences under this uh, banner as well. There was one called The Private Investment Brief, which was a spin out of Santangels. Some Zero, uh, which I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with, is a buy side community that's about sharing best ideas. It's very similar to Joel Greenblatt's Value Investing Club. Joel's, you have to actually apply for, and you have to submit like two ideas a year to uh, stay active. But I think they award like five grand a month to the best idea. And Joel Greenblatt, the guy that wrote the little book that beats the market, Columbia professor, hedge fund manager. Um, that's a really cool website. What else? Oh, and so our buddy Wes Gray, by the way, actually wrote a paper and said, you know, do these websites offer any value? The picks. And so he did a, you know, West PhD study of some zero and value investing club and found that, yes, indeed, they actually, you could find alpha there. So it's a pretty cool, cool idea. I mean, we're not stock pickers here, so it's, we're not spending a lot of time there. But if I was a stock picker, value guy or hedge funder, those would be two really cool resources. Yeah, I love the idea, but you would have to keep your group somewhat small, I would think, because so much of the potential alpha is found in who's willing to put in the due diligence and find ideas that aren't common knowledge. Well, yes you know, and no. If, if you're I mean, blasting this out, if like Gunlock or somebody's coming on and saying, my best idea is investment ABC, and all of a sudden, you know, tens of thousands of podcast listeners hear that. I mean, right. That but so gonna- my, my concept for the, the newsletter was focus on this. So attend all the conferences, summarize them but also do an interview series where that's the only question. That was just the theme, right? So so a lot of people are attacking this in various iterations. This, again, is an old five, seven-year-old one. Our friends at Real Vision TV do something similar. John Malden, I don't know if it still exists, but had a, had a publication called Just One Trade mm-hmm. that was under the same banner, um, pretty expensive, but but similar idea. Uh, so again, this is an idea that, that we wrote about a long time ago, but a lot of people are starting to tackle and a lot of good resources there as well. This sort of makes me have an idea. The um, O'Shaughnessy podcast you had me listen to, gosh, what was it, a few days ago, he, he had on the guest the Rich Barber, the guy from uh, Canada. What I found fascinating in that was how much due diligence that guy was putting into just a handful of trades. He would be calling up... Um, the Wealthy Barber, the, by the way. What did I say? Rich. Rich. You know, it's <laughs> funny. That's a book that I'd actually never heard of. 
And it was a fun interview. So Jeff's referencing Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best podcast. And it's worth listening to. You should definitely listen to See, if you had access to our curated podcasts, you would probably know that that would be one of the best interviews. Well, I mean, but was, most people haven't listened to it because they don't know. One. Anyway. But um, what, what if you had a small, small group, five guys, and you each committed to... You know, six months of due diligence on no, something. No, but so you that's what I mean? like what you're talking about is what every hedge fund does on the planet, which is these like idea dinners where like these hedge fund managers in New York, and I've been to some of these, San Francisco, like, they're like, hey, let's go get dinner. And each person pitches an idea. And so you have these small networks. I mean, that's what like literally like the entire, the entire group of tiger funds, you know, you pull up tiger's <laughs> funds and they all own the same stocks, you know, different flavors. But, you know, so the, the, these people and their networks and their methodologies, they, they share, but, but value investing club as well as some zero are closed networks. Okay. It wasn't really my idea for this. My idea was for this for to be the order or the scribe and say, look, I'm going to go just report on all of these conferences and clubs and feature these ideas. Manual of ideas is probably closest, by the way. Um, but also to interview people and that just be the style of the interview. And we actually thought about, I, I don't know if we thought about it. I thought about this on this podcast was doing it where we just said, Let's interview people and we'll say, what's your best idea? I mean, eventually it comes out somehow. Like, you know, we'll talk to Jared Dillian and he talks about his thesis for shorting, you know, Canadian housing stock, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it's never just that explicit. Maybe, maybe that'll be our 2017, rest of 2017 or 2018 question. Yeah. You know, 2016 was beautiful, useful, magical. 2017 has been, what's your most memorable trade? Maybe we'll just start doing what's your best idea. I like it. Maybe we'll start asking all three. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So someone should write that newsletter that it doesn't quite exist. Quant backtester. Quant backtester was an idea where there, back when we wrote this in 05, 6, 7, what, or sorry, 05, five years ago, 2007, 2012, was there wasn't a great resource to like go online and backtest asset allocation or tactical asset allocation models. So if you wanted to go test the permanent portfolio versus the endowment portfolio versus Ray Dalio, like you couldn't, right? So we we eventually built it in Excel, and that's a feature for the idea farm. We send out once a year, we update it, and you can test any asset allocation back to 1972 as well as tactical models. In the meantime, a lot of other websites have sprung up. You know, so when we wrote our tactical asset allocation paper back in 07, um, you know, a lot of people were like, hey, this is cool, but, you know, I, I, I want to update it. Maybe I want to short. Maybe I want to do exponential. So all of these websites have now sprouted up, which is great. So Wes, our friend at Alpha Architects, who we mentioned already, has modules that do it. Ned Davis is an institutional level, certainly a boutique that's very expensive for the institutional crowd. Um, we're clients that can do it. And there's a number of sort of uh, individual focus. So when I say that, it's either less than 100 bucks or probably free or something like that. ETF replay is a good one. Portfolio visualizer is a free one. Extra dash is another tactical one, as is allocate smartly. Is this another idea that's you originated? This has mostly ago? been done. Do you, do you see a, uh, a new tweak that could be made now that would enhance? Well, so there, there have been some. So I'll, I'll name a few others, and then before we'll get into it. So portfolio charts is one. Quandle, systematic investor. Again, we'll link to these on the, on the um, show. But Quantopian is an example of one that's taken the idea and run with it. So Quantopian has kind of crowdsourced algorithms where you could go in, test your algorithms on their data set, and it only goes back to like 2000 or something. So they don't have that much data, strangely. But 
you can easily get monthly data back to the 1920s with French Fama. It's free online or through various resources. Global financial data is the paid one we use. But Quantopian basically is trying the idea of, hey, you create these algorithms. We'll crowdsource it. We'll run a fund based on it. Stevie Cohen invested in it, you know, former SEC now 0.72. You know, the challenge I've always had with the crowdsource stuff is like, yes, it's potentially good to come up with ideas, but you still need someone probably to dial in the knobs. The crowdsource, which isn't what we're talking about here, but the crowdsourced investment idea is a Arlington style size graveyard of companies. I mean, there are so many companies that have tried to do crowdsourcing investing and have failed very miserably. I mean, the mm-hmm. oldest you go back is marketocracy. So the the white hairs and no hairs that are listening, remember back to the 1990s, that was like the first version of, hey, we're going to crowdsource the theory that good stock pickers exist anywhere. They're not just Peter Lynch, but it could be a doctor in Idaho that knows these biotechs and they'll manage their own portfolios. We'll curate the best ones and then we'll let them run a mutual fund. I mean, that sounds actually pretty legit in theory and they've done it and it's done horribly. And now, Why? so some of the part, well, some of the commentary on that is that it comes down to who's uh, dialing the knob. So is the underlying methodology that you're trying to find talent and then let them run these portfolios or are you just chasing performance? And so that that's the biggest concern with a lot of these algorithm, you know, websites that lets you, you know, some some people Covester tried to do this in the early days, Wealthfront, many people don't know, it was originally called Kaching. It was a Facebook game. Same thing that lets you track investors, then Kaching pivoted to tracking managers and the managers could charge up to three percent. And then eventually neither of those worked, so they transformed to Wealthfront. But there's been just dozens, if not hundreds, of companies that have tried that. Anyway, sorry. That was a kind of offshoot of Quantopian, and Quantopian is trying to do a crowdsourced fund, so they're actually going to manage money. But my key is that, do you have someone reasonable, and Swenson would be an example, you know, who runs Yale's endowment, that is battle-tested and knows how to put portfolios together and not just pick the best algorithms or, or whatever. So anyway, the quant back tester exists in many forms. We send it out to the idea farm. Um, there's lots of good websites. My, there's three or four of my favorites on here that are good but that's an idea that, for the most part, exists. But there's probably still some opportunity there. We we have the domain tactglass.allocation.com. Did you know that? I did. Um, so <laughs> if anybody wants to run with that domain, as well as our favorite, which we tweeted about the other day, one-click divorce, <laughs> please. That's not on our list of fintech ideas. But if you want to run with it, let me know. We have so many domains that, oh, my God. it's, a, it's How a, many do you own now? What was your it, max at it's, one It's point? probably only like 50 yeah. But fifty times ten dollars or twenty whatever whatever it costs per year, five, ten dollars. Anyway. All right. Where are we? <laughs> you, got, you sort of dovetailed into the next one. You know, research boutique for crowdfund companies. No, totally different. So this is well, um, a little bit. It's totally different. Um because <laughs> disagree. Let me let me well let me explain why. So over the past few years you've had this explosion in ability to for companies to crowdfund or raise money either for accredited or non-accredited. And my comment has always been this. I said, people spend more time, you know, picking out a TV or, you know, car than certainly focusing on their investments. As And, and I see the crowdfunded space is like the worst example of that, you know, so you could go on and put a hundred dollars, thousand, a million, whatever you want in a lot of these companies. And it's so easy now and and there's a lot of boutiques that let you do it. So AngelList, Equities In, 
WeFunder, and there's like 10 others, right? And I, you know, it's a great thing. You can invest in these companies. We've done two crowdfunding rounds. I mean, we've raised, I mean, ironically, we've been one of the most successful crowdfunding companies, you know, that's actually raised money. So we've raised, I think, 3.34 million across two crowdfunding campaigns. We did on our own because we didn't want to charge the high fees a lot of these sites do. But that's not the opportunity. The opportunity is that you go to this website and you like read the abstract, say you're a doctor again in Idaho, and you're like, oh man, this sounds cool. Thousand bucks, boom, put it in. Well, the problem is there's like almost no information. So even if it's a late stage private company where it's secondary liquidity, so like Lyft or maybe even Uber, you know, there's more information. You can get the revenue maybe, but but for a lot of these really small ones, there's almost no information. And so I said, look, huge opportunity for someone to start a research boutique. So you would probably need half a dozen people, but this is a great MBA, probably semester or year long project thesis. You say, look, we're going to cobble together a boutique and we're going to do heavy due diligence into these companies. And I think the best way you had to do it was you'd say, all right, we're going to make a, you know, buy, sell, hold recommendation or make at least, you know, bought one buy recommendation per month. So there's a lot of ways to do it. You know, you've seen these syndicates sprout up on AngelList, which is people saying, hey, I think this is a good idea. You can tag along and invest with me. I'll take 15% carry. AngelList takes five and you get to invest. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's pooled VC. But I said, instead of doing it as a syndicate, why not do it where you look at the opportunities everywhere and you do deep dives. And so people could either buy the research reports to say, hey, here's one that just came out. I want to buy the research report on it for a hundred bucks or whatever. Or it's a different service where it makes recommendations where, you know, you put in an actual portfolio or say, these are ones you should buy, should not buy. My, my impression is that when you're dealing with private companies like this, you know, the, the numbers are so slim in terms of the percentages of companies that work. So to what degree? Well, that, what, that's the true example of value added research. Agreed. Uh, but, but if you're doing, you said deep dives, it's a lot of manpower and there's a lot of companies on these sites. So A, that's potentially a hell of a lot of time to do this. But even if you find great companies, is it not smarter to try to amortize your money over a hundred of these things rather than just, you know, right. so it's a, one it's or a, two? It's a hundred rather than a thousand or it's 10 True. rather than a hundred. So sure. if, you, if you winnow down this list, at least get rid of all the crap. So if you're like, these are really terrible ideas. And, you know, in some cases, like the problem with some of these sites, like AngelList, depending on the syndicates, I mean, there's like a setup fee of, I saw one the other day and it was like 20% setup fee. Usually they're only a couple percent, but you're like already you're taking a haircut of 20% and then it's 20% performance. Like it's just the, the biggest problem is that you have to do it as a private newsletter. You couldn't do it as a public facing boutique because you can't write about these deals publicly. It runs afoul, not for you, but the sites will block you. Mm-hmm. So I tweeted once on AngelList. I was like, oh my God, look, so-and-so is raising money. And they're like, Mab, can you please take that down? It's seen as general solicitation. Maybe that'll change. So you do it as a private newsletter and private boutique. So you could charge for you know coverage of individual companies or you could charge for recommendations, which I think, which is the way I would like to see it. Um, there's one website doing it called Early Investing and they actually do a really good job. Um, so we'll link to it. There's a lot of companies tackling sort of the data side of it so there's one called triton research there's one called disruption another called data fox another called cb insights and Mattermark. all those are kind of in the in the in the universe you know uh, of this area but no one is actually other than early investing is is doing it where they're saying hey look this is what you should buy this is what you should sell and i think the best way to do it would be the writer of the newsletter has to be I, i'm putting my own money in along with you 
mm-hmm. and and maybe you can just piggyback. I mean, I like if we weren't doing Cambria and everything else here, like this would be a really fun area because it's fascinating to me getting the information on and. Yes, we're year eight bull market. So you start to see some really crazy, awful, terrible ideas that are getting funded for crazy amounts. But there's also some really cool companies that are growing fast and hitting these new niches that, that I think are, are great investing. And so in a world, particularly where a lot of the public companies are waiting longer to go public, this is kind of a part of the asset class. If you're looking at equities, you know, the private equity VC that a lot of people have less exposure to. So anyway, I, I think it's a it's a good opportunity. What's the latest company you saw on one of these sites that grabbed your attention? You know, my my two favorite sites are are certainly still AngelList and Equities In. And AngelList is pivoted to this like syndicate model, so it's people that bring a deal to the site and you subscribe to the syndicates, which means you just follow them. But some you can autofill and some not. And you've seen either other innovations like uh, Jason Calcanis left and then just started his own. Because to avoid the fees. So he's like, I'll just syndicate my own deals on my own. So as far as specific names, I'm trying to remember. I love, and this is a little biased because I'm a consumer of these. I still love the the subscription boxes. <laughs> and I subscribe <laughs> to about so 10 of, of those, those, you know? Can't and tell so, you how many times I've come to your house and seen some random things lying out on your our counter. Our dog has learned to open cardboard boxes. I, I should, I'm going to get a video and post it to the, to the podcast. Because there's so many boxes come, we've taught him to to open the boxes for us. But I mean, there's some there's some good one of those. Uh, you know, Birchbox was kind of the original one. It's an entire industry now. It's totally saturated, but it's such a great business model because to the extent you do find one that works, it's sticky money because people forget about it, yeah. or or they actually love it. So there's one that's based out of L.A. and I forget what it's called, but it's targeted just at gamers. We actually tweeted about this. And they make hundreds of millions of dollars. Like it's unbelievable business model. So I subscribe to about a dozen of these. <laughs> By the way, a great app. There's an app called Clarity Money that it's kind of like a mint or something where you sync your accounts, but then it it lets you know what all your subscriptions are so that you can cancel them. You know, it's like, do you know you're paying? And I like this is a perfect example. It's like, do you know you're paying fifteen dollars a month for Audible.com? I was like, I had no idea. How long has that been going on? So there's that's like two business models already that are made. So I love those. And so there's some that I like I had never even heard of. I invested in a few where just like, you know, the the sales are increasing, they're doing better. I mean, it's just it, it anyway. Let's move on or we're we're gonna be going forever. <laughs> All right. Rakaiza Reborn. You skipped another one, which was a part of this similar idea, which is what we called syndicate podcast and newsletter. And oh, so man. this is kind of like a if that was, uh, what number was that? Seven. So if that was 7A, this is kind of 7B, but we'll still call it 8 or whatever, or 7, whatever. Um, this is Because this is in the same ballpark, which is, it'd be cool to have a podcast if you then interviewed all the syndicate leads and said, what are your best ideas right now? So tell me about what the syndicate you're raising. And, and, the, pro- and the big problem with this one, of course, is that you can't talk about them publicly. So until the rules change, or you could do it as a private you know, newsletter radio show where you had on like the Shark Tank. What's her name? Barbara uh, Corcoran. Corcoran. She, she has one that actually has a ton of good deals. I, I think she's really, I don't know if it's her network or, you know, the people running it, but she has a lot of really cool syndicates on there. Um, but to have her on and say, Barbara, what's your best, you know, one you're leading right now? Again, it probably ties in with the one prior, which is the boutique or newsletter concept because it has to be private. If you're talking about it publicly, you're going to get cited. So 
It's in, I, so I know no one doing this, but I don't know that you can. So prior to working with you, we were actually in talks with Barbara's, uh, I guess, lead syndicate guy, yeah. Phil Nadell, yeah, we yeah. pursuing that idea. Yeah, and didn't go anywhere, but yeah, but had had legs for a little while. Cool. Got an email from him this morning. Oh, nice. <laughs> okay. Uh, any more on that? No, but but syndicate. By the way, the syndicates are like the all time best deal for the syndicate leads. I mean, getting 20% carry on something for doing nothing other than just raising the capital for it. I mean, that is a awesome business model. Since that's what you would be doing if you were not running Cambria. Right no, now. But I think it's way too much. I mean, that's why we did the, I think that's why we did the crowdfund rounds on our own and didn't charge any carry. It's because I mean, that, that carry is a huge a lot of money. drag, but I mean, look, if you, if you can deliver great deals and consistent, then it's a great job. Feels very much like two and 20. But it's more than two and 20, probably. <laughs> All right, keep going. Rukeyes Reborn. Um, this is one that's actually kind of funny because Louis Rukeyser was, you know, the old school Wall Street week. And he used to do it, I think it was, I think it was every Friday. So he would have on um, like Marty Zweig and all these just great long form conversations. So the whole point of this idea was that we need more long form conversation. We need less CNBC, Fox, Octobox, where there's nine people shouting at each other, and more time for people to thoughtfully converse. Since this has come out, there's a couple of things that have happened. One is that podcasts have, have blown up. So you've had this huge uh, launch of all these podcasts, which didn't exist when we wrote this. Ironically, Wall Street Week got relaunched by uh, Sarah Mucci. So he actually bought it and then relaunched it. I haven't watched a single one, so I don't know if it, it's doing well or not and how they're syndicating or where they're publishing it. And then I think the best version, honestly, is, is and for full disclosure, they've uh, been a sponsor of uh, the podcast, but Real Vision, mm-hmm. I think, is doing a really good job. I, th- I think the first iteration, and, and this is long-form video. We did an interview from the Caymans, but it's like an hour, high-quality video. They have an app, so Real Vision TV, with some of the best minds out there. So they got you know Kyle Bass, all these guys talking, interviewing with each other. The first iteration of the site was was the the interface wasn't you know wasn't well built, but I think the second iteration is. So I think they got a big lead as well as a million podcasts. I mean, we published on Twitter a list of about twenty podcasts we really liked the other day, but that's grown from you know two or three to now. Again, this now has been this category for Rukai's Reborn has been so successful, it's now generated the new first idea, which was we need to curate this idea. Right. There's so much good stuff that we need to we need to curate it. Uh, next one, the street 2.0. This is one of my favorite ideas, and this idea doesn't just apply to finance and investing. Back up. What was the street 1.0 for people who aren't sure? It's it's the current the street.com, which is a website that. Oh, if you haven't heard of the street.com, it's uh, it's been around forever. Jim Cramer helped start it, and it's funny because the the list of writers that have been either came out of the street or wrote for the street at some point, it's like a who's who of the investing space, uh, particularly the early writers. So I, I wrote there for about a year until I got fired, which is a great story. <laughs> I don't know that story. Uh, well, so, and it's funny because the street.com was so innovative in many things. So they had the, you know, free version, which was the street. They have the paid version, which was called real money. And they had a columnist conversation, which is an early, which essentially was an early version of Twitter. So you would have the columnists able to interact with each other and they would post. Now you had to go through this arcane, terrible, you know, something that was like 
DOS 95 version of WordPress where you actually had to like code in. It was really, really bad. Anyway, so a commas conversation. You could probably go search all my old articles on there. I don't know if they purged them, but, but I would cite mine. So I would say source, you know, and, and at one point they, which is by the way, the standard way, correct way of writing and research, you source your sources they eventually like no you're linking back to your own sites and other sites too much like we can't have that and i was like well that's literally the best practices whatever but it was funny because a couple years later the guys that fire me they're like hey matt would you like to join our new site i'm like do you guys remember how this ended anyway the street has been so poorly managed for the past two decades you know the, the private equity companies got involved and it's consistently trades at like cash you know value and the problem is it makes a ton of revenue but it then spends all of it. And here's the idea. So the idea was what's, you know, the big, the biggest expense for a site like the street or a, a newly successful competitor, uh, business insider, you know, the biz- biggest expense is headcount. So business insider probably has hundreds of journalists. You know, you think about it and you say, all right, well, look, we live in a world where there's a lot of, and, and there, and there's the kind of similar site, which is, um, seeking alpha which has like, I forget what it is, like 40,000 contributors or something, you yeah. know? So it's the exact ass opposite of that idea. But but it, you say, all right, well, we already know, we could identify, I don't know, 10 to 50, but let's call it 10 to 20 of the best investment writers out there. So we could just go down the list, you know, Ritholtz and Josh Brown and all these guys, right? Most people could, they may not agree, but you could identify with a lot of them and say, why not get the top 10 or 20 together form a website, almost like a co-op and, you know, either republish the articles, but have them be heavily branded in, you know, with the authors. Cause you have a site like seeking alpha, which has like 40,000 contributors, which it's just, it's like Yahoo message boards times a thousand. It's just that the quality is, is so poor. It's just a, it's just a ginormous fire hose. And you can see a theme on a lot of my ideas, which is curation and trying to find the signal from the noise. So give me the few gems. So, if you could edit that site and republish or convince any of the writers to only publish there, all of a sudden you have the best of the best. You have the best writers. You eliminate the number one expense, which is headcount. And so all of a sudden you have a site with almost zero startup costs and already the people that control all the traffic. You basically are replicating wire cutter for various, various industries that you like. Well, and the cool part about this is then you could then, you know, take it to any demographic. You're like, all right, you care about microbrew. So here's how the world's changed though. When we wrote this, like I still used to go to individual writers' blogs. Like I would go to Barry's blog. I would go to all these, you know, various people's blogs. I haven't done that. I can't even remember the last time I did that. You know, I'll see someone will mention a a post or an article on Twitter or, you know, I'll get it through the grapevine or through one of these apps. Um, You know, remember RSS feeds, right? Mm -hmm. Where people would curate. But if you could have everything in one place where they had the best writers, that would be a great resource. And so if you do the valuation on Seeking Alpha or The Street or Business Insider, and we did an article uh, on the blog called how much content is seeking alpha gotten for free. So meaning the writer, all these poor writers post and they don't get paid for it. And they may, they get paid some tiny fee now, I think, but it's like the last time we checked, it was like 50 million or a hundred million. I think it was $120 million. So the site gets all the benefit, but the writers get none, but we live in a world now 
And you see this changing with the publishing industry. You see it changing with podcasts and everything where the content creators are able, and YouTube especially, are able to monetize their writing. And so I said, look, we'll, we'll have a site. We'll get the best writers together. We'll run it for them. You know, again, going back to Forbes, how they did it 10 years ago, where there's like your name as like a tiny byline at the end. So the world's changing to where the content creator should own their content and really monetize it. So basically, it's thinking of a platform for that. But then that applies to everything. You're interested in microbrewing. Let's get the 10 best guys writing about brewing beer. If you're interested in, you know, polo, horse, you know, the, the playing polo, then we could do the same thing. And so you could then take it to almost any vertical if you wanted to. I just said we should do it in investing because we know a lot of the people. And I actually took it to all the, the bloggers and guys and said, what do you think about this idea? I'm going to build a site. We should have you run it, Jeff. Build a site. We'll fund it with a million bucks. And blogger, we'll give you equity and, I don't know, half the revenue from the the pages that you have content. And, by the way, we'll let you use our advertising network if you want, as well as have all of your offerings, you know, available to the public, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're going to say yes. Why would you not? Like, it's it, anyway. So they were all on board, but we got enough, we got enough on our plate to where... It's uh, it's not a priority for us, but I think it's a, I think it's an awesome idea. Yeah, well, I mean, as the the riches are in the niches, that's the saying goes, you know. God, I've never heard that. That's a good one. Who is it? Oh, God, I don't know where I picked Yogi that up. Yogi Berra. <laughs> All right, we done with this? Yeah, let's go on. Hedge fund letters. And the original name for that, when we first wrote about it, in like I don't even know when, was called Bloggerator for Blog <laughs> Aggregator, and I even got some cool. Uh, logo designs off 99 designs we had a new name for it the other day i can't remember what it was anyway if you got a good name for that site let me know hedge fund letters what number are we up to 10 god barely halfway um hedge fund letters is a simple one it's a website we had started anonymously years ago and then shut down because it was being a headache and the concept was i love reading old hedge fund letters whether it's from einhorn or soros or julian robertson and it's such a shame that there's not a, like a Wikipedia or resource for these somewhere. And, you know, the world's gotten a lot more transparent. You know, back in the early days, hedge funds were so secretive and they didn't want people reading their stuff. But the world's really changed. And so my idea was, let's start a website. We'll um, archive and link to all these old letters. Not only that, we'll, the 2.0 version was we'll reach out to all these hedge funds and say, hey, here, you can claim your profile here and it'd be verified. And if you want to post all your old letters, you know, I'm sure it'll be seen as an amazing thing by the community and you'll get, you know, traffic and interest. I think it's still, I, I still think it's a great idea. And I think it used to get a ton of traffic, by the way, the website, because no one is writing about this long tail of hedge funds. You know, you Google some of these hedge funds, even still, like the number one result is hedge fund letters because there's just not that much content. Uh, so I think that would be a really fun area. I don't know anyone that's archiving the letters still. Well, l- listeners, if you hear this and you actually look up hedgefundletters.com, we did actually put that site together. So there's something up there. If you, uh, you can go there and sort of see the idea and news to me and a crew that's up there. <laughs> okay. I know, I know. I just didn't know there's anything there. Yeah, there's so apologies there. for the content, by the way, but, but I think it's a good idea. It's a simple one. And it's not one that's hard. So if like, if you're a young guy or someone who just loves hedge funds, 
Like, that's probably a million-dollar idea. You could probably get a million dollars in well, revenue from that sort site. Sort of the second evolution of that, which ties into your wire cutter idea, which actually would be to read all of the old hedge fund letters and scrap out the stuff that's relevant only to say what was happening in the market 10 years ago. You find the pithy nuggets of wisdom that are timeless, so you find something that has a learning lesson, and you present that versus having to trudge through you know countless pages of stuff that's no longer applicable. Yeah. All right newsletter sampler this is one that we kind of built and then it's kind of again just sitting there um the concept was for those who aren't familiar mark holbert uh one of the best writers out there for the longest time wrote an article or sorry newsletters i'm blanking on what it's called but holbert's digest yes holbert digest where he would review and track the performance of all the investment newsletters and not surprisingly Many of them weren't very good, but there's a handful that have been consistently great, etc. So it provided two services. It not only shown some disinfectant light on the newsletter space, which is notoriously kind of snake oily, but also it had a way of tracking some of the best ones. And there were some good ones and great research. And we subscribed to a handful of professional as well as um, broad-based newsletters today. And so my concept was it'd be nice to A, at the very end, so Holbert stopped publishing that about a year or two ago, which is a crying shame. It really is uh, terrible. And so the first concept was like, let's at least just have a white pages of the investment newsletter space. So you want to go to somewhere and learn about all the investment newsletters. Here you go. Second would be you could reach out to all the newsletters and say, hey, send us a sample. Um, We'll post them all on the website. That way people can look at these newsletters and get a lot more information. It's all in one place. You know, lastly was, hey, hey, you could do a a, a paid or freemium subscription where you send out once a week a different newsletter. So that way people get an exposure. You charge like 100 bucks a year. Say, hey. And the newsletters like it because they get potential new customers and signups. And you know the investors like it because they get a different newsletter every week. That's a cool idea. Again, that's something that I like. I would like it. Even the crappy ones. Like It'd be fun to just to flip through. But not only that, but even just the tiniest bit of information in this space would help. Because there are... You know, literally thousands upon thousands of newsletters out there, and it's hard to distinguish, all right, which one has 200,000 subscribers and it's legit and it's been around for a while versus who's doing this in a basement and has 20 followers because, you know, you go, they all have websites and you can't really tell. There's so little yeah. uh, information. Yeah. So, and there's some, there's some, there's some really some amazing ones where every time I get a newsletter, it's like, for me, it's like Christmas Eve, you know, Christmas morning where they're so good and packed with information. I mean, we've mentioned Jer- Jared Dillion's, by the way, who just started a podcast and his, his newsletter is called The Daily Dirt Nap. Like I read it every day and it, he's a great part of it because he's a great writer and he's entertaining. He's been right, but it's just it's a fun read. So I'm sure there's a lot out there that I don't even know about. Oh, yeah. that I'd like to read. Um, I feel the same way about Luthold's Green Book. But that's institutional and you, I don't think you could pay for it if you wanted to. Maybe you could. Uh, anyway, um, so this is a website we actually have up. It's a skeleton website. If you want to run with this, please reach out to Jeff. This is something that I think is is um, we're gonna have to hire another Jeff. This sounds <laughs> if, awful. If you want to, <laughs> if you want to take over uh, and, and be Jeff's assistant, also email Jeff. Um, if you would like pizza from Domino's on Saturday night, email Jeff. <laughs> All right, so that's a cool one. Check it out. Move on. Tactical Robo Advisor. Yeah, I mean, this is one, this is a good example of, we've been writing about the Robo Advisor space ever really since it got started. And it's actually played out, you know, look, we'll be the first to admit mistakes and dumb 
predictions we've made, but the robo advisor space has played out really exactly like we predicted, which was there's a lot of innovation, but the incumbents have an incredibly unfair advantage uh, that are the issuers that have their own funds because they can launch at a much lower fee and uh, also have the scale of their current client base. So that's what's played out. Vanguard and Schwab were late to the game, but Vanguard, I think, is now at like $70 billion. They raised more this past quarter, I think, than all the other v- robos combined. And then you know Schwab's number two, and then, and then Betterment and Wealthfront, uh, Betterment, and then Personal Capital. So that's really the top five. Do you think this is going to squeeze out anybody who doesn't have their own in the future? I think everyone will have one, no matter what. So... Cref, Morgan Stanley, they've all announced digital offerings. And again, we, we were talking about earlier, from someone who's used one as well as clients use them, no one will ever go back. Like it's such a better interface. Like, so we partner with Betterment on ours. I mean, clients don't pay commissions on the trades. So you go back to paying $20, $40 commissions. Why would you ever do that? Yeah. You know, it's such a no brainer. So, but, but there's some other things that have um, kind of evolved that we didn't really foresee. And it, and part of it is that the best business model has kind of become the cyborg, which is a digital advisor paired with a human. So Vanguard's is 30 basis points comes with an advisor. Schwab did zero, but then they also came out with a 28 basis point that comes with an advisor. Betterment pivoted to including an advisor what for exactly, a higher fee. How much is the advisor doing right now? I mean, I, I, I don't use any of them. Um, granted, uh, our our buddy Steve Lockshin the other day was like telling everyone, he's like, just sign up for all of them. A lot of them don't have minimums. Like if you're an advisor and you don't have an account at every single one of the robo-advisors, you're an idiot because it's it's for see most the, of them. Yeah, he's like, you should be doing your due diligence. Right, see what the competition see what the competition's doing. Yeah. Some have minimums. So, the, the, so we didn't really foresee the cyborg being kind of the killer, you know, app of this. Meaning, it's an advisor that's lower cost, but it still has a digital solution. I think Wealthfront is the only. I mean, there's a couple, but Wealthfront is the only one at scale that still hasn't added a, a advisor side. Mm-hmm. So, but the floor has been set. So, if you're a, a advisory platform, digital advisor that doesn't do planning or offer, you know, human-based element, the floor is zero. So that's been set. You know, we've done it. Cambria's done it zero. Schwab's at zero. So if you're just doing investment management, that's now the floor. And the problem for a lot of advisors is that the floor on the advisory side is really that 30 to 50 bips. I mean, personal capital is higher. They're up at, I think, 80 or 90 and are still successful with $4 billion. And let's be honest here. There's still, I mean, even at what a hundred billion, this is meaningless compared to how much AUM, Morgan, Merrill, mm-hmm. all these other guys have. But they should be aware and be scared because thirty bips is now the floor or the the standard. I'm curious. On a side note, what do you think about the role for advisors? Let me back up. You know, you've written at length about how over the long term any legit global asset allocation model is going to end up in the same place down the road they might travel different paths to get there but if it's well diversified they're largely going to be the same so the 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 actual advisor can make himself worth whatever's fee if he basically keeps his uh, client from doing dumb stuff so basically i mean if you have some ability just to sort of set your asset allocation model and then turn away from it, do you need the advisor? 
I, I, you know, so like we've also commented on the robos over the years. I said, look, it's going to be really hard when we have the next bear market because you don't have that Chinese wall of someone to talk to to close your account. You know, no buffer between you and yeah. I mean, <laughs> at least you could at least if you have an advisor, you can call them and say, hey, you know, Jim, I'm freaking out. Can you sell everything and close my account? And they'll say, you know, it's probably not the best idea because here's the goals. Here's what we set out to do. This is totally within the parameters, you know, yada, yada. So the advisors are worth their weight in gold there. So that's why the kind of this digital cyborg, I think, is the best offering where you still have someone. But a lot, but, but if it's like a call center one or if it's just you have one in name only and you don't have a personal interaction with them, does that count? Like, I don't know. I like probably not. But people behave poorly with advisors too, as well. So it's it's very dependent on, you know, what's going on in the world and what the bear market looks like. In in general, I think if you're if I was an advisor today, I would say, look, I'm going to implement a digital solution, and I'm going to focus like hell on estate planning, right. and tax management. And I was thinking, there's got to be more than not, just the holding the hand, and not only holding your hand. I want to meet all your children because it's only one in five accounts where the the children inherit when the parents die keep the same advisor hmm. they move on they do something else they find someone they like so i would focus all of my efforts on the other stuff right including education you know as, as well as just being i don't want to say concierge but being involved in their lives and being what an advisor kind of in my old school way of thinking about it, it was meant to do and the cool thing is if you implement a digital solution you spend zero time on trading and asset yeah, management that's become commoditized so you get to focus on the relationship side now that's a nice background for this idea because we're not even talking about the idea yet the idea was tactical <laughs> robo advisors so my point was when we wrote this and this is before this even happened i said that the sponsors and custodians will be impossible to beat here because they have their own funds now if you look at and we've done a lot of articles here i mean google betterment versus wealthfront I think it was Betterment versus Wealthfront versus Schwab, all the, in, in Goldman too. All of these guys do the same thing. And that's not bad. They do a buy and hold, low cost, asset allocation, tax harvest. And there's some bells and whistles. Some have a little more in foreign. Some maybe have commodities. Some don't. But they, we back tested them in 1972. They all essentially do the same thing. And that's fine. But there is zero differentiation. So if you want one of those, you should go with the cheapest one. Right. And that's who will eventually win. And they're all so like I tweeted the other day, I said, look, the top five robos, they're all fine. I mean, I like some better than others, but they're all fine. So this is way before we even launched one. But I said, if you had one that's different or other ideas, maybe so Cref, TIA Cref um, announced that they're doing an ESG focused ability. Right. And I think Motif did the same thing. He said, all right, well, younger clients care about this and you can screen out various investments or stocks. You know, great. You know, the way, you know, so we've done obviously the Cambridge Digital Advisor. We do Trinity portfolios, which we've talked about, you know, at length, where it's roughly half in buy and hold allocations and half in tactical allocations, all with the tilt towards momentum and trend and value. You know, that's the best way we think, you know, we know how, um, and, and including a little bit of alts too. There's a handful of others. I don't even know how many of these still exist. I mean, obviously West at Alpha Architects. There's one called, uh, Hugens, Huygens, H-U-Y-G-E-N-S. I'm terrible with that name. Hedgeable and Hedgewise. I don't know if those still exist. They probably do, but meaning, you know, you can't, even if you believed in that world, it's hard to compete with a Vanguard or a Goldman when they're charging, you know, zero to 30. 
right? So if you're going to do a robo, I said, consider doing a tactical. Anyway, we did it. So we'll see. It makes We've, me think of, uh, it's a little different, but um, research affiliates and are not who have the, um, the smart beta back testing. Mm-hmm. If you could find a way to target that, sort of have bolt on sort of yeah. asset allocation pieces. Well, and it's funny because, you know, so there's other offshoots. So for example, we were talking about dimensional fund advisors the other day. So DFA is a classic mutual fund shop. They only distribute through financial advisors. And so they have great funds. They're like 400 billion now, very traditional factor based out of the French Fama world. And they have a great business model because they attract a cult like following. You have to like apply to get approved on their network. They send you through classes and it's a good offering. But the challenge is if you're an end investor, the only way to access DFA funds is having to pay an advisor too. And some of these advisors charge like 2% a year. So I said, I said, if I was a young guy, and believed in buy and hold, yada, yada. And I wanted to be raise a lot of money. I said, I would become the low cost DFA provider. I said, you know what? I'm going to do this for 30 bips. The lowest one we could find, I think was like 50 asset builder. It was one of the earliest robo advisors, by the way. He doesn't get much press. Scott Burns' shop, who I think is now retired, but they are like 800 million maybe on DFA funds. And so low cost, but most of them around like 50 bips. I'd come in and I'd say, look, I'm going to launch a DFA shop and I'm going to advertise all over the place. I'm saying, look, I am the low cost DFA option. You want DFA? Great. 25 bips. Boom. I don't do any planning, but you get DFA funds. Uh, I think that'd raise a lot of money. It would piss off a lot of people. Well, this idea <laughs> you, has the, you'd make a lot of people angry. DFA yeah. now, by the way, sub advises on some John Hancock ETFs. But anyway, it, it's, um, this idea has the biggest scale ability, but it also has the biggest seed, initial seed nut you need to actually get started. Well, you need, <laughs> you, you need, um, armor from all the DFA advisors coming to murder you from when disrupting you, their business. When you launched uh, your no-fee fund, mm-hmm. I won't mention it here, we're mm-hmm. not supposed to mention the names, were you wor- worried about the uh, the market's reaction to you not Yes, yeah, so, well, it's actually funny. I, I don't even know if you know this story, but there was definitely something amiss. Like the night or two nights before we launched, NYC called us and was like, hey, like you can't launch, there's some this that or that we're like what are you talking like it was the most meaningless and they're like yeah there's some people that were like complaining it was like this weird i don't do conspiracy theories but to me this was such a conspiracy theory someone didn't <laughs> want and we're still the only zero percent management fee permanent fund out there um one of the lowest cost now it's only like 50 million or i think it's getting ready to be or maybe yeah somewhere in the mid 40s 50 million so it has done nothing to disrupt the entire <laughs> 2% management fee asset allocation buy and hold world because that has almost a trillion. Maybe we're early. We'll see. Maybe we just haven't uh, marketed enough. But but yeah, th- that one definitely gets its share of critics for sure. A little shady there. Yeah. All right, moving on. Um, free acorns slash stash clone. What number are we at? 13? 13. All right, we're getting closer to the end. Um, so acorns and stash, if you're not familiar, and there's a handful of these other ones, are essentially like these savings apps. So we all know that people are terrible at saving. The best way to kind of do this is to automate it or to have uh, ability to take money out of your checking account or whatever, just the, the behavioral nudges that make savings and investing easier. So it sounds great on, on, on theory. And most of these charge, almost all of them have the same business model. They charge a dollar a month and over $5,000 balance. They'll charge you 25 basis points for a portfolio to invest it plus fund fees. So same as every other robo-advisor. Sounds great, right? And so they've uh, literally had millions of accounts sign up, been hugely successful. Problem is in every single journalist that writes about this never gets it right. They don't do any homework. Is that 
they're hugely predatory. And the reason being is the average account size for a lot of these is like $30 to $100. So if you're charging $12 a year on a $30 account, that's 30% fees. You know, on a $100 account, it's 12% fees. So, you know, dipshit investor, just go open an account at Bank of America, you know, or somewhere where you're not going to be paying. Now, there's other fees, of course, if, if you don't watch out. Or just keep the money under the mattress. But... You know, so so it makes tens of millions of dollars of revenue for these savings accounts uh, apps. So I said, look, if if you're, we called it. I think one of the articles was millennials that can't do math. But I said, why wouldn't? What happens if Vanguard or Schwab or someone? Law, I mean, Betterment, to my knowledge, is doesn't have an account minimum. Like, why wouldn't you just go sign up with one of these that are zero fee? Like, it's I guess it's good marketing and good branding, but. You know, eventually there'll be someone who's going to launch a clone of these totally for free. I mean, look at Robinhood Trading Brokerage. They launched, they have zero dollar trading, and they just got valued at I think one point three billion because they've amassed that yeah much? yeah the um what's his name the famous Russian investor who's done all the a lot of the startups here just invested around in them, but but they've amassed a huge user base. So by the way, investors, you want to trade Camber ETFs? <laughs> They're free on Robinhood. Anyway, I, I think someone will eventually launch a clone of these for free. We considered doing it. A lot of work to build the app or to partner with someone we're not too interested in, but uh, yeah, it's an opportunity for someone. Account size for thirty hundred bucks—that's a lot of accounts to make this sizable. Yeah. All right. Like I said, not all these. This, we the title of this is seventeen terrible million dollar fintech <laughs> ideas. All right, keeping on the free theme, what about free ETF trading brokerage? So the challenge I have with Robinhood is I don't really see a business model. You know, they say they'll do a, you know, they'll charge for margin lending, which is not the in the investor's best interest. So we've seen with the Forex brokerages that if you build a company that is, you know, predatory or not in your investor's best interest, it doesn't last. You have huge churn. Um, and then, or you, they have like a gold level and I'm not commenting on Robinhood. I'm, I'm sure it's a great brokerage, but I, it's not clear to me how they'll ever make money. Um, they have like a gold level, which lets you fund the, like start trading even before the funds hit and do some other stuff, hmm. uh, early access to IPOs. I don't know. It, it's just, is that even legal? I, I, I don't know. So, so, but my idea was that, so there's all these brokerages. So for example, you can trade our funds, um, commission free on interactive brokers and interactive brokers is smart. Because they just say, hey, look, you pay the commission, what what the investor would have paid, and, you know, everyone wins. So, Cambria gets assets, the investor gets 0% trading costs, Interactive Brokers gets the the revenue from the trading. So, it's good for everyone. You know, anyway, it, it, the commissions have come down a ton over the past few years. I mean, five if you're paying more than $5 in general, it's it's probably too much at this point. But we said if you could do one where it's totally free, but implement that, you could have a sustainable business model. But it kind of benefit like everyone wins. Like there's no real downside to me. Anyway, yeah, I like it. I don't want to be in the brokerage business, so run <laughs> with it. Free shares ETFs. I love this idea. I was chatting with um, Venuto for, from Tesoro on this. So Mike, if you're listening, uh, apologies for publishing this idea. But we talked about it a few weeks ago on the podcast. Anyway, and I'm not dumb enough to do it. But essentially, a lot of people don't know this, but ETFs or mutual funds can often will lend out the securities in their fund to short sellers and charge a fee. And the good guys, the mutual funds like Vanguard, will then return that fee to the shareholders. So it comes out as as additional yield. Well, if you have a low-cost fund, so there's a handful of ETFs, BlackRock, et cetera, that do this, 
let's say the fund charges 20 basis points, so 0.2% per year. Well, they may get 50 basis points in short lending. So in, in effect, you're getting a fund that not only doesn't charge 20 basis points, it's a negative 30 basis point fee. So you're getting paid 30 basis points to own this fund. So not only is the fund free, you're getting paid to own it. That's just awesome. That's badass, right? Like a lot of people don't know that. So we live in a world where there's free funds already. Not my idea. My idea was, okay, target the three or four or five areas that are volatile. That So short lending in general, um, you get a higher revenue on high short interest names. So usually the names in the news, uh, whether it's Tesla or stocks that you know, people think are expensive, that are highly shorted, you know, people will charge 1%, 5%, 20% a year to borrow that stock. So you got to be a really confident short seller to pay 20% a year borrow cost. So you're assuming it's going to go down more than 20% the next year. So my idea was, all right, target three high short interest areas. So biotech, um, semiconductors, maybe real estate, even the Russell 2000, launch a, a suite of 0% 0% fee funds. So the most that fund can charge is 0%. You undercut, obviously, everyone. Mm-hmm. So you should gain a ton of assets. And, you, and the perspective is you say, all right, we'll keep the first 50 basis points of short lending, and then we'll return the rest to shareholders. What do you know about any sort of historical case studies of uh, short lending blowing up on the it, investors? It's it's all in the design. So you they require collateral. So for example, if we lend you our shares of Tesla, um, typically the short seller has to pledge whatever the amount is in cash or T bills or something, uh, plus a hair like one hundred twenty percent. So you got a twenty, and and that gets marked to market nightly. And so you know the custodians. Uh, who who manage this process uh, take a fee for doing it. So usually for the bigger guys, it's like 80, 20, 90, 10 to the fund company and 10% of the custodian. And um, they manage it. And you you can write in whatever you want. You say, look, I want to be as conservative as possible. We're only going to work with the best names. We're not working with, you know, bucket shop, uh, you know, out of, um, you know, Jersey that no one's heard of that's going to, you know, be trading in these names that doesn't post collateral or, you know, whatever it is. Sure. You can be conservative. Um, and on top of that, you can not lend out a high percentage. You can, there's a lot of things you can do to mitigate the risk and you can stop at any time. Of course. I'm curious at the opening of this little idea, you mentioned you're not stupid enough to do it. What this, you know, sounds interesting. We, what, we have enough ideas that we launch as funds where I'm like, this is a brilliant fund idea and no one seems to agree with me. This fund <laughs> sits at $10 million. And so that's a real cost. Uh, but then again, I see funds launched and they go to a billion dollars that I think are stupid as well. So who am I, who am I to know? <laughs> I think someone will do this. And it's funny because there is a laundry list of, very large failed ETF providers that when I say very large, meaning they probably manage in the hundreds of billions elsewhere and they don't know what to do. Like, are they going to launch another smart beta large cap value fund? I mean, come on. They've already missed the boat. They don't have any ideas. They're bankrupt as far as, you know, a, a brand or what to put out. Here's an idea for you. So you guys run with it. <laughs> All right. There you go. We'll sell you the domain if you, if you want it. Two more. Quant Cookbook. Uh, this is fun. Not technically fintech, but it was inspired by some stats, quant stuff. Um, there was a 
538 post Nate Silver's site on ranking video games or not board games by their uh, quant ratings. And so we talked about Wirecutter, kind of does this curation of various sources. Um, and so our idea was, you know, there's an area everyone likes, probably the number one book selling category, if you want to make big money in books. And ironically, it's probably self-help and weight loss and cooking. So the two are diametrically opposed. And we said, look, you know, there's all these websites that have recipes. And if you, and, and they have like thousands of reviews for many of these recipes, why not, you know, curate them and, and find the highest rated ones? And, and granted, if it's a five-star recipe with 5,000 reviews, chances are it's pretty good. So we wrote a post on the blog where we found, I don't know, the 20 best recipes on the internet. And it was funny because a lot of them, a lot of these cooking websites are horribly designed. Like you couldn't search them. You couldn't rank them. You couldn't do anything. You could find a recipe page for apple cobbler and it would have a rating and that's it. Like you couldn't go to the, anyway. So someone with some, some programming ability could write this cookbook. And it was interesting because a lot of the recipes are very comfort food. You know, it's mac and cheese. Mm -hmm. It's the world's best lasagna. Mashed potatoes. Yeah. I mean, you're not getting sous vide pork chops with uh, lemon rosemary, you know, uh, sauce. But, but, and so we, I, I was like, I'm going to cook some of these and I cook some and they're great. But it, but it's an interesting idea for a cookbook. Um, so if you, uh, if you decide, or a website, like there's, there's a better recipe site out there that one could go source all the other recipe websites and just do a simple ranking of the world's best recipes. You love I wonder, I wonder if that's a, well, because, <laughs> because I don't like wasting time on nonsense. So, Here's a good example. How many restaurants do you go to where the food's just crap? Like, how does that restaurant not... I mean, I, I know your taste, so your, your bar is much lower. <laughs> you know, how did that restaurant... How does this crappy hamburger joint not go down the street to In-N-Out and Five Guys and a thousand other good hamburgers and say, we're just going to copy what they do? You know, and at least like, well, let's take Shake Shack's recipe. They just put out a cookbook and we'll do Shake Shack with our twist. Like, that, that's not that hard. Anyway, so the same thing with recipes. Like, why waste your time and and... Again, this, this a, if there's a common theme to these ideas, that's probably it, curating and ranking. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, there, there's, there's no need at this point to be cooking shitty recipes and listening to terrible podcasts. We <laughs> <laughs> got any more? Well, on that note, uh, last one. Yeah, Forever Fund. Um, by the way, and Jeff is skipping like two or three that he wants to run with that he thinks you people will steal and are, is too good of an idea to share. So blame Jeff for not giving you a couple of the best ones. Which one is this? Oh, Forever Fund. This was an idea. We, we spent a lot of time talking about investor behavior and, and hey, put your money really where your mouth is. If you really are a long-term investor, then act like it. So we said, what are the best ways we can behaviorally nudge people to do the right thing with investing? So they have our ETFs. They can sell them. They have a separate account. They can close it. You know, th th there's no real barrier between them being stupid. And so one example was, I said, let's start a fund. And you could do it as a mutual fund and say, all right, it's it's 0% fee. So we're not going to charge anything. And, you know, we'll invest in our ETFs and other ETFs. So it'll be low cost, less than 50 bips, all in, give you a globally asset allocation portfolio. So kick-ass fund and, and asset allocation, low cost, tax efficient. However, we're going to implement both a penalty and a reward system. So the penalty is... It's going to be a 10-year declining redemption fee. So year one, maybe it's 5% or 10%. Maybe it should be really just egregious. 
and it declines all the way to year 10 where it's zero. So if you hold the fund for 10 years, and maybe it's five, I don't know, we'd, we'd figure it out. But, but 10 seems sufficiently long. You would need it to be at least one business cycle, at least. So 10 years, if you hold it for 10 years, there's no redemption fee. And, but people don't really respond as I was um, brainstorming with Jason Zweig about this other day. And he said there was actually a fund that did a long lockup and then um, it was very successful until 1999, 2000 happened. Everyone sued them. <laughs> so, so this wouldn't have a lockup, but it would just say you're paying a fee on the way out. Tough. Yeah. But the beauty is I would say, look, we're going to call this the irrationality dividend or the um, long-term thinking dividend or something where we say everyone who paid that redemption fee for this year gets dividended to all the other investors in the fund as a bonus, right? Mm-hmm. So someone's short-term thinking sucks for them, but it's going to get dividended out to all the investors that stayed the course. Like what a cool, so not only do you penalize people for acting stupid, you reward people for acting um, long-term. I would love to see sort of the mind warfare. Of, let's say two neighbors who both get into the fund, things start getting a little south and one neighbor comes over to the other trying to get them to sell out of the fund. I mean, there's got to be some potentially amazing ARB opportunities where like, let's say you had another 2008 and the fund was at a billion dollars and then everyone panicked and sold and it went down to like 300 million, but you have all these massive fees then if you're an investor, I mean, you have to get some huge dividend from sticking around. Yeah. Um, anyway, I like that idea. We have enough funds out there right now that, that are underwater. <laughs> so when, maybe when we hit, what's a good number? We'll launch this. Hit five, five billion, 10 billion. Sure. Let's go on okay. 10. All right, we initially had talked about doing some market commentary, but we're an hour and a half deep. Why don't we save that for uh, maybe do another one later this week or throw another podcast out next week? Great. Well, look, I mean, also, listeners, if you got any cool ideas that we haven't thought of, if they're really terrible, send them over to Jeff. If you want to be Jeff's assistant, send him an email, um, com or feedback at com. Anything else, Jeff, think about yeah, not on this one. Great. Awesome. All right. Well, it was a lot of fun. I'm, I've run out of voice. Uh, thanks for taking the time to listen today, you guys. Hey, please leave us a review. We've had 40,000 downloads an episode on average now, and like 100 of you have left a review. So that's like 0.01% of you. So get off your couch, five minutes. You don't even have to get off your couch. Just go to iTunes, leave a review. Uh, we read them all. So it's uh, really thoughtful. We'd like it. There is going to be a lot of show notes for this episode. Uh, but always, you can find the rest of them, too, at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs> <laughs>